the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio, man. If you know, you know. Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. All right, welcome back. If you're just tuning in, here's the magic number to be on the program. I'd love to talk to you. That number is 888-914-9149. That's sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters, 888-914-9149. Let's get over to James now in McAllen, Texas. Hello, James. Welcome. Hi there. Thank you yes, for sir. Talk. Yeah, welcome. Uh, my question is about Mary. Um, okay. After Jesus' Jesus's birth, did she stay pure, or did she did she sin? Because the Bible says everyone has sinned. Yeah, yeah. So if you're thinking about Romans chapter three and Romans chapter five, um, it, Mary is not included in that. But Mary was sinless from the moment of her conception. In the Catholic Church, we call that her immaculate conception. And what that means is that from the moment of her conception, she was preserved free from all sin, and never fell into any sin at any point along the way. Why isn't she included in, in the Romans? For well, bec- well, because, for example, um, there are other people who are not included as well. So take uh, infants in the womb who die through miscarriage. They never sinned. Babies who were born and uh, didn't live till the age of reason where they could sin, they never sinned. So there are whole categories of people that are exempt from that. Uh, that's a statement that's not absolute, um, where it says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, no one is righteous, no, not one. One easy way to show that this is not an absolute statement is to look at Elizabeth and Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. And it says, in the days of Herod, we'll, we'll begin reading in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and order and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. So there we see yet another example in the New Testament itself of people who I don't think we, we could safely say had never sinned, but they were definitely not the ones who were being described in Romans 3 and by allusion in Romans chapter 5. You see what I mean, James? Doesn't all, all mean all? Doesn't, doesn't all mean all? Nope, it doesn't. Okay. I still don't understand why, where it says that if, you know, I don't, I don't understand your reasoning. Okay, well, I'll go through it again. Um, do you believe that children in the womb can sin? No. Okay. So there's a portion of the all that's cut away now. Correct. Because they can't sin. They're human. They're part of the human family, mm-hmm. but they can't sin. How about a one-year-old child? Can that child no. sin? Okay. No. So those are just two easy examples. What about somebody who maybe lives to maturity but is impaired mentally through no. you know, cerebral palsy or some other reason? That person's human. That person is a descendant of Adam and Eve. That person can be baptized, in fact, and be part of the body of Christ but never have sinned because that person didn't have the capacity to do so. So I understand your question, James. Don't get me wrong. But when you say, does all mean all, well, not really, no, not in an absolute sense, because as we see, there are whole groups of people who are not in that all. Um, in the same way, we can also talk about 
um, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Not to say that they didn't ever sin. I'm pretty sure that they probably did at some point or another. But when it comes to the Blessed Virgin Mary, she too would be exempt from that all because she was conceived free from all sin. So that's, if you're asking what does the Catholic Church teach, that's the teaching. Okay, where does it say that she's been conceived from all sin? It doesn't say that, just like it doesn't say the Trinity, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. Um, the doctrine can be made. In fact, I wrote an article, if you're interested, it's just Scripture to show the Immaculate Conception in the Bible. And um, if you want, I can show you where to get it. It's a free article. It's yours for the taking if you want. Sure. Okay. So go to the show page. It's uh, relevantradio.com slash Patrick. Okay. And then you'll see three blue buttons. One says links. And in that link section, you'll see the articles. And the one in question is Mary Ark of the New Covenant. And let me just look at it here. It's, it's more or less about midway. There are about 30 different articles. These are all free. And that particular article, um, I show just using the Bible alone, the case for the Immaculate Conception. So I don't quote popes or church fathers or anything like that. It's just strictly what does the Bible say. Okay, great. I hope that's helpful to you, and I'd be more than happy to chat again if you're interested in going further. All right, thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you, James. 888-914-9149. By the way, everybody, those articles are a resource for you. Maybe maybe you're up to speed on all these things, but you know somebody who isn't and you just want to share. You can grab those links and text them, email them, save them, print them out, what have you. They're all free, and they are on topics just like that. 888-914-9149. Let's go to Mark now in Tucson. Good morning, Mark. Well, Patrick, thanks for taking my call. Happy to. So I, I have a question about, this, this is coming up in, in recent political news and how it applies to us as Catholics. So mm-hmm. the question is about supporters of IVF. So now uh, Donald Trump has come out in support of IVF, and there's a number of even Republican legislators that are supporting IVF. Mm-hmm. And does this mean that we as Catholics can no longer support these, these politicians? Would it be a sin to vote for them, or would it be a sin to work for their campaigns? So, I mean, I mean, like to volunteer for their campaigns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question, especially timely, because we have this next election cycle coming up. So the rule of thumb is that if, if there's a candidate who is running as a candidate and promoting as a candidate things that are morally evil, like abortion, for example, IVF would be another example of a moral evil. Um, then in conscience, we should avoid supporting any candidate who is promoting something that's deeply contrary to the church's teaching. So that's the general principle that the church proposes to us, and we should take that into every election, not just this one. Yeah, thank you. That's kind of the way that I was reading this, and mm-hmm. it's, 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 a, it's kind of sad. I was hoping to support I was wanting to volunteer with the Trump campaign, and I'm, I'm beginning to think that probably isn't a good idea right now. I've also written to the campaign, and I've said I've encouraged them to change their their position on this. And I've, mm-hmm. I've mentioned that as a, I'm a Catholic voter and that I would be a supporter, but I'm concerned about this position on IVF, and I urged them to rethink it. What kind of reaction did you get, if any? Well, I just sent that out this morning, so I don't know. I don't know if they'll write back mm-hmm. to that, but. Um, it's interesting to see if they respond to that, but I definitely wanted to get that out there because it's 
it's it's almost and it's it's going to come to the point where who could we support at all? You know, we 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 have to leave a blank ballot because I think that almost all politicians who are running will probably come out in favor of IBF. So it's a, it's a tough one right now. Yeah, for me and probably for you too, the moral imperative is clear that we can't countenance, we can't support, promote, endorse, vote for what what have you something that is deeply immoral and IVF fits into that category. There are other issues as well, but we can't be pick and choose Catholics. We have to be consistently pro-life and, and this is something that can be complicated, no doubt. Um, I, I mean, there are times when maybe the only thing you can do is to abstain on a vote. Sometimes you can choose mm-hmm. the lesser of two evils, if we want to put it that way. Sometimes, although rarely, you can choose a candidate who's who's good. He or she has all the qualifications, or at least all the pertinent qualifications that one would want, and you can vote for that person with, um, you know, with enthusiasm. But sometimes you're not presented with viable candidates, which is a shame. I wish it weren't that way, but sometimes that's what you run into. So the main thing, just to reiterate, Mark, if you don't mind. The, the moral principle that governs this kind of thing is that we're called to be, to speak the truth in love, to be children of the light, to not be, you know, to, to not be mixed in our sense of trying to do right, but also doing wrong at the same time. We should avoid that. So anything or anyone who espouses things that are deeply immoral, we should be on guard against going along just to get along is my view. Well, thank you, Patrick. That's kind of, yeah, that's the way I was thinking on this. So, so, mm-hmm. so thank you for confirming that. Oh, you're welcome. It's, you know, it's timely, as I say, because these elections come at us every four years for the presidency. Now, one other thing, I didn't mention this, but I should, and that is we should always pray for the conversion of heart for people. Let's say, I don't know, let's just throw a dart. Let's say a, a speaker of the house who is Catholic and who promotes abortion to the hilt, we should pray for her conversion, even if she's no longer in office. Um, a president who espouses un, unhindered support for abortion, we should pray for his or her conversion. So there's always that possibility that the person's heart will change. So whether on that issue or some other issue, we still have a role to play in praying for, as it says in First Timothy 2, praying for kings and all in authority, that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all devotion and dignity. That's what I like. That's my probably my favorite verse in the Bible, <laughs> that we can lead a quiet and tranquil life in all devotion and dignity. And when politicians and elected officials interfere with that dignity and devotion, all the more so we should be praying for a change of their hearts. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate the call. How about, uh, how about uh, Gina in Temecula? Good morning, Gina. Good morning, Patrick. My question is, I'm an anesthesiologist in Temecula area, and I have a Jehovah Witness, um, and my question is, if they were to go to C-section and lose a lot of blood Mm -hmm. and about to die, am I sinning by obeying her wishes? I, well, let's put it this way. You would not be sinning because you are doing something life-saving that is medically legitimate, as you well know. <laughs> you don't need me to tell you about such things because you already know. 
She, on the other hand, as a Jehovah's Witness, is deeply misguided on this issue. Jehovah's Witnesses, as you know, they, they eschew blood transfusions because of the biblical prohibitions in the Old Testament of eating and drinking blood. So for them, they would see that as a serious sin. So in her, what's interesting about this situation here is that in her case, if her conscience, as malformed as it is, nonetheless tells her, if you do this, you will be committing a sin, then she shouldn't seek a blood transfusion because for her to go against her, albeit malformed conscience, she would be intending to do something that she believes, honestly, that God says not to do. So for her, she couldn't do it. But for you, it would not be a sin because, A, there is nothing immoral about it, per se, and and blood transfusions are not covered by the prohibitions against drinking blood in the Old Testament. I've gone round and round with Jehovah's Witnesses with the Bible on this issue. Um, So you know, number one, that you're in the clear morally because the act itself is not immoral and the object of the act is not immoral. And the intention of the act of giving her a blood transfusion is not immoral. And the circumstances of the act are not immoral. So on all three of those grounds with which we measure the quality of a moral act, the object of the act itself, the intention of the act, and the circumstances of the act, you have a green light in all three of those areas. So if you were to do that, you would not be committing a sin, even though she, you know, it would be against her wishes. Now, I don't know medical policy. I don't know how hospitals would handle a situation like that. Maybe you can enlighten me. But an yeah, well, analogy that comes was... to mind, I'll, I'll just mention briefly, an analogy comes to mind is let's say that the family was Christian scientists and they believe in not using medicine or medicines to cure an illness and just praying for, let's say, a child who's dying of some disease. The one tenet of that religion is that you just pray that they would be healed. Well, you as a medical doctor, you know that prayer is important and that's good, but this child also needs medicine or an operation, what have you. So you would be, in in my understanding, within your rights as a physician to defy the wishes of the parents and provide medical treatment for a dying child. Um, now, maybe I'm wrong about that. Can you shed some light on what the medical establishment would do in a case like that? Um, from what I understand and overheard yesterday, if this baby of the Jehovah Witness needed a blood transfusion, we're not allowed to even give the baby the blood transfusion, but perhaps I misunderstood. Um, well, did that, is that coming from the hospital or what source did that come from? That, that, that was from uh, just the nurses talking in the break room. I see. Okay. <laughs> but um, uh, my question was really, am I sinning if I obey her wishes because the medical or the hospital policy would be that I do not transfuse her? Even so that was my question. Death. So would the would the hospital say you're forbidden to transfuse this child because of the mother's wishes? That, that I'm forbidden to transfuse the patient. I wouldn't okay. be working with the child, but mm-hmm. with the mother. And mm-hmm. the policy for me to follow would be that I don't give her any blood, that I obey her wishes. And so I'm just concerned that I'm committing murder by if I was to watch her die in front of me and not transfuse her. Yeah, that's a terrible dilemma. Now, personally, 
my view is that I would do so, I would do it anyway to save the life of this patient, this child. Um, you wouldn't be proactively murdering her, but it would be death by neglect, obviously. Um, I'm surprised to hear that that would be the hospital's policy. I would think that they would be on the side of sound medicine and to do what's necessary to save the life of the person because the mother's view on this issue is radically defective. And, well, and that's not why you're not... talking about the baby, but just talking about the mom, the patient... The, the guideline that we're supposed to follow is to obey the patient's wishes, the adult mom who is saying, don't transfuse me even if I'm dying. Yeah, okay, I see. So it's her loss of blood, not the baby's you're talking about. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be dealing with the baby. Okay, I misunderstood that part. And I can't I tell you, you exactly. Yeah, I couldn't really say exactly what the law is on that because that's not something I do with the baby. Yeah, well, I can see the dilemma. Um, morally speaking, you would not be doing anything immoral by disobeying her wishes and giving her transfusion. Policy-wise, obviously fired. that's a different story. Yeah. You can get fired. Yeah. Um, can you recuse yourself from a patient? I don't know if that's the right word for it. but Yeah, um, if it was a scheduled case, I could certainly ask a peer to... Um, if they felt comfortable doing the case. But sometimes it's the middle of the night and these are emergency C-sections and there's no one around, you know. What if you, what if, let me just use a slightly different analogy here. What if you were an OBGYN and you're delivering a baby and the mother for some strange reason has a religious conviction that if the umbilical cord is wrapped around the baby's neck and the baby is suffocating, don't do anything to stop that. Don't do anything to remove the umbilical cord. And I know that that happens often enough that it's not far-fetched. So in a case like that, I would think you would just ignore that and say, I understand that's your religious conviction, but this child is suffocating. I need to remove the umbilical cord. And you just do that. that that's what I would do, I think. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, because it sounds like that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that'd be a better question for an ob mm-hmm. Um Yeah. I think for you personally, I mean, if if you're running the risk of this young mother bleeding to death and her reasons for not wanting a transfusion are clearly incorrect and you run the risk of losing your job... The only thing I could think of would be you tell the patient up front, either you agree to me giving you a blood transfusion if it comes to that, and you'll be unconscious anyway, so you won't know about it, or you'll have to find a different doctor because my career is important to me and your life is important to me, and I don't want to sacrifice either because I believe that your reason for this is wrong. So maybe you could avoid ever being in this situation. If you're in that situation now, maybe tell her that right now. I can't do this for you. And if you start bleeding and I need to give you a transfusion, just know I'm going to do that. And if you don't want me to do that, then you'll have to get a different doctor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for what, your advice. I appreciate it. and love. What do you think of that advice, though, Gene? I'm just curious as a physician. How does that, does that ring true um, to you or how does that sound to you? It sounds like 
I could potentially get a, you know, a huge complaint to the hospital that I'm not mm-hmm. obeying or respecting my patient's religious beliefs. Um, and it sounds like in a pinch, I need to find a backup anesthesiologist that would be willing to come in even in the wee hours of the night if a situation did arise. Thank God it's, it would be incredibly rare for something like this to happen, but yeah, just a, situ- a potential situation that came up yesterday and I wanted to be prepared. I appreciate that. I really do, Gina. Um, and I, I thank you so much. I, I have um, empathy for you in your situation. So I'm glad there are good, thoughtful physicians like you out there. Thanks for the call. Well, we're coming right back. This is the Patrick Madrid Show on a Taco Tuesday. You never know what you might hear. And it could be your voice if you call 888-914-9149. I have an email that came in questioning my response to the caller a minute ago about IVF and supporting candidates who support IVF. And I'll read that email on the other side. Big time gratitude to Charity Mobile for sponsoring the Patrick Madrid Show. They're a pro-life cell phone company with nationwide coverage and no contracts. You can choose from the latest phones or bring your own. New customers can mention Patrick for a free phone or another offer. Info at charitymobile.com. This is the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio and relevantradio.com. Well, it is an election year, that's for sure. And the temperature always rises when it comes to an election year. So two emails back-to-back on the same topic. This one's from Dave in North Carolina. He's listening on the app. He says, and Dave, I know you write to me frequently. I do appreciate your frequent emails. He says, did you intend to confirm the caller in understanding that he could not vote for Trump because Trump is for IVF? That sounded to be what he took away from the call. Trump is wrong. IVF is wrong. Trump is not God. Trump is not running to be God. Trump is not Catholic. Trump was the most pro-life president we have had, notwithstanding. Biden has been arguably the worst president. Hopefully no Catholic would vote for Biden. The last thing we need is for Catholics to abstain from voting because Trump fails their purity test. Good for the caller to lobby the Trump campaign. Trump supporters hopefully can influence him in the right direction, Good, God willing, Dave says we'll have a second Trump term. Okay, so that's Dave's contribution. And then Lori wrote in almost at the same time, uh, listening also on the Relevant Radio app. She says, I listen to your show daily. I appreciate all you do to evangelize. I am writing regarding a call you just took regarding voting for a presidential candidate who supports IVF. You told a caller that sometimes we may need to sit out an election if both candidates support or campaign on immoral issues. In my opinion... Catholics and all Americans should not, and that's in caps, sit out this election. The Democrats are ruining this country with the most pro-abortion president and administration currently in the White House. Unfortunately, we as American Catholics are faced with having to choose the lesser of two evils. I agree that IVF is wrong for many reasons, including church teaching. However, I also believe it is a lesser evil than the willful and intentional killing of an innocent unborn child in the womb. I understand that IVF can often end in end the life of frozen embryos and that obtaining those embryos is inherently immoral, but I think abortion is much, much worse and telling people not to vote because a candidate supports IVF will result in more abortions, not less, 
By allowing the current administration to remain in power, IVF is an issue on which most people are extremely uneducated. Let's take up that challenge and work to change the culture, starting with who who is in the White House. Thank you, and God bless Lori. Okay, I'll address both emails simultaneously. Um, first of all, I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. In fact, I mean, there are certain legalities that would prevent me from doing so, even if I sought to do so, but I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. I am here to share the church's vision and teaching on moral issues. And that's what I'm going to do. And if it gets in the way of somebody's party politics or, you know, they really, really, really like a certain candidate, well, that's not what I'm here to deal with. My 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 job is to deal with the issue, as was asked of me earlier, what is the moral approach to a given topic like IVF? So you heard what I had to say, and I stand by my words. I understand the points that you're both making, but I stand by the point that I made. I'm not going to deviate from that because we have to be consistent in our moral approach to these issues. Let's say that there was a candidate that you really liked, and he did all kinds of really great things, or she, if you prefer a female candidate, but happened to be in favor of slavery. If the person in question had a great uh, position on defense and the economy and immigration and what all the other issues, but still was deeply committed and publicly promoting slavery, would you even, like, vote for that person? Chances are you probably wouldn't, David, and probably wouldn't, Lori. I would guess if I had to guess. And so, yes, there is a time, and and we all have to approach this issue with our consciences fully engaged, properly formed consciences. And there are times when you're faced with a difficult choice that sometimes equals no choice at all. Now, it's not for me to say that this is one of those cases. That's for you to say that. You have to look at it for yourself. But what I am telling you is we have to be consistent and not let preferences and party politics and things, well, we've always voted this way. I mean, I I know many Democrats over my lifetime anyway, including family members older than me, who have said, well, we've always been Democrat, we've always voted Democrat, we're Catholic, we've always voted Democrat. Well, there comes a time where you have to say to yourself, why am I voting this way when this party is directly contrary to certain things, such as the issue of abortion? Sometimes you have to deviate from the way you've always done it. And if you're going to be consistent, then these are some of the evaluations you have to make. So for me and my house, what I would say is, When I approach an election and I try to follow the same guidelines that I am proposing to you, that the church ultimately is proposing to us, and that is to seek to vote for the best, most qualified candidate wherever possible. Unfortunately, sometimes it may not be possible. But if you throw in the towel and say, yeah, well, okay, but I'm just going to vote for this, especially if it's a candidate, whoever he or she may be, who is openly espousing something that is deeply immoral, like abortion, then for me personally, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I can't vote for you. You may be good in other areas. You may have good ideas or you may be skilled, what have you. But if you're, if I can't trust you to make such a basic decision, and here I'm talking about abortion, the original question was IVF, that fits in. 
But if I can't trust you to get the right answer on such a basic issue, like you don't promote something that winds up killing innocent people, then I don't know what else I can trust you with. Come on, man. You know what I'm saying? What are we talking about? Well, you know what we're talking about. Well, maybe you don't know what we're talking about. But keep listening. So that's my answer, Dave, and that's my answer, um, Lori. And I do appreciate your thoughtful emails. I really do. 888-914-9149. Let's go to Marie now in Wisconsin. Good morning, Marie. Good morning, Patrick. Thank you so much for taking my call. Happy um, I was wondering if you could explain the different elements of the armor of God in Ephesians 6. I am supposed to be presenting to a group of parents mm-hmm. whose students are being confirmed in six weeks, and I'm doing this tomorrow night, and I can't find any Catholic audio commentary on the armor of God. So I was wondering if you could just break down each of those different elements and what they mean and how those confirmation students would put on the armor of God, and then I can just replay this audio for them tomorrow. Okay. Fair enough, Marie. That's that's good enough. Um, now, I will tell you that there are Bible commentators, Scott Hahn comes to mind, who have written uh, deep and incisive commentaries on the epistle to the Ephesians. So I would certainly defer to their greater knowledge and biblical insight. But for what it's worth, I'll give a quick overview of it. So Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 13, it says, well, let me begin in verse 12. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So he's setting the stage for what follows as being a matter of spiritual warfare. We're not at war physically, violently, against other people. Uh, We are at war against our own passions, our own appetites, and of course all those external powers of darkness that he refers to in verse 12. So let's go through these different accoutrements. Therefore, he says, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having gird your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, you'll notice that these are similes, or if you prefer, um, they're analogies. So, girding your loins with truth, that phrase, girding your loins, means prepare for battle. And if you are wrapped in the truth, then you're going to be in the right position to do battle in terms of spiritual warfare. If you are shrouded in the darkness of error, you're not in a good position to do battle against the powers of darkness. So gird your loins, prepare for battle with the truth. The breastplate of righteousness, what does a breastplate do? It it deflects blows that could kill you. If somebody in those days were to go into battle, he ran a very high likelihood of being run through with a spear or a sword. And so a metal breastplate would be a way to deflect those harmful or fatal blows. Having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. What is the gospel of peace? Well, it's the message of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel in miniature. There's much more to it. And the equipment of the gospel, I would say, is the written word of God and apostolic tradition that St. Paul refers to in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He says, Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions you received from us, either 
from an oral statement or by a letter of ours. So we're called in Scripture to hold fast both to the oral tradition and to the written tradition. I would propose that that's what he's speaking of here, is the equipment of the gospel and being equipped thereby. Verse 16, besides all these, take the, let's see, take the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. So faith, biblically speaking, is your trust in God's promises. So the evil one, of course, as Jesus says, he's the liar and the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. So those flaming darts are intended to kill your faith. It's intended to kill your your relationship by killing you, again, analogously. So your shield of faith is your bulwark against these efforts on the part of the evil one to lie to you and to thereby destroy your faith. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So here, too, we see in terms of armor, the helmet of salvation, what does that do? That that causes, it deflects those blows to your head that could certainly kill you, knowing that you are indeed saved and you're on your way to salvation. You will achieve salvation by God's grace when you enter into the beatific vision, but that's a promise that God will not go back on. He's not going to change his mind. You could change your mind, of course. You can lose your salvation, as the Bible plainly says. But in this case, the helmet of salvation is a protection against whatever temptations and lies and tricks the evil one might throw at you. And then lastly, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This passage does not mean the Bible. It includes the Bible. The sword of the Spirit is, as it says in the Hebrews, and sorry, in the Epistle to the Hebrews, is referring to Jesus Christ, the Word of God. So the sword analogy that's used here, you see it again in Hebrews where it talks about how it cuts through the joints and the marrow, and at the end we have to give an account to this Word of God. Who is that Word of God? That's Jesus. So the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is again the gospel as preached and taught by Jesus. It is the truth of Jesus himself. It's the truth of his teaching. And whether we are having recourse to this truth in the written scriptures, the written word of God, or an appeal to the oral teaching of the church, the apostolic tradition, this is the truth that you might say cuts through the clutter of error. It cuts through the camouflage. It cuts through all of the different things that could get in the way of somebody knowing the truth. And when you go into spiritual warfare with this sword, in your hand, so to speak, uh, you're going to have success in doing that. So that's my quick off-the-cuff, without any preparation, uh, just thinking about it in the moment commentary, Marie. Does that help a little bit? That works great. Thank you, Patrick, so much for your help. You are most welcome. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I've been talking a fair amount today about how important it is for you to attend the Eucharistic Congress, which is coming up this coming July, and what it means for you in terms of your own life, you know? Do you need a miracle? Do you want to draw closer to God? Do you want to save your marriage? Do you want to help your kids come back to the faith? Jesus has the answer, and he's waiting for you in the Holy Eucharist. And I want you to be there at this conference this coming July. I'll tell you more about that right after this. Thanks to network sponsor PushPay. PushPay offers parishes a platform for tracking donations and sacraments, overseeing schedules, mobile apps to help manage your administrative load, and much more. Info at relevantradio.com slash pushpay. That's relevantradio.com slash pushpay. 
Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question? Give Patrick a call. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid on Relevant Radio. All right. Welcome back. Hey, I've got a quick email I want to get to. And um, Preston Alex is here with us today, our very own Preston Alex. We're going to talk in just a minute about the Eucharistic Congress. But this email sort of fits in. This is from Lisa. Uh, Sorry, Lisa, you asked me to keep you anonymous, but um, I won't say where you're writing in from. Just generically, somewhere. I heard you talking about the Mormon who said he didn't think Catholics truly believe that Jesus is present in the tabernacle. Well, he didn't say that exactly. He didn't think most Catholics really took that very seriously. She says, if we did, we would be in awe and reverent to Jesus. I totally agree with him, 100%. The lack of reverence in our parish has for the Mass, been so disheartening. From the moment you walk in, it's like a community center. It's so hard to pray when you arrive and try to become close and aware of Jesus in his presence. A lot of people are laughing, talking loudly, or visiting. I believe this all falls on the priest or the bishop for letting this happen. I could see the changes slowly becoming more and more liberal over the years. I can hardly go to my parish anymore that I've been at my whole life. We parish hop going to parishes that are still quiet and respectful to everyone entering upon until you leave. It's a whole different experience, a meaningful one. Thank you for letting me vent. Well, I understand, Cheryl. Thankfully, though, if this gives you any encouragement as we talk about the Eucharistic Congress coming up this July, it's not far away. This phenomenon, I think, is changing. There's something good happening in this country right now. And I thank God for the bishops who are showing this leadership in this area, promoting faith in Jesus, and you see it in more and more parishes now, where I'm sorry to hear it's not happening so much in your parish, but I think that too will change over time. When people become aware of and convinced of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, their demeanor changes. Their tendency to be more reverent increases. The quality of their prayer deepens. And this is happening Maybe slowly, but it's happening in parishes all around the country. So I'm glad you wrote in. Please don't be discouraged. Come to the Eucharistic Congress that is taking place in Indianapolis this July. We're going to talk about that. Preston and I are going to talk about it for just a second. But please come to that. Bring your family. You're not far away. Uh, I see where you're writing from, and you're not that far away from this. So you could easily make a, a trip of it. And I, I think I could guarantee you that... By the end of that five-day period, you're going to have an even deeper love for Jesus in the Eucharist, and maybe the other folks from your parish who go will come back and start a revolution there. Wouldn't you say, or um, <laughs> you too, Cyrus, I guess, but yeah. Preston, wouldn't you yeah. say that that is almost an inevitable consequence when I, people attend the Congress? I think so. I was on a call a couple weeks ago with about 50 bishops, and they are so pumped for this. I And to speak to the, their heart, I think they, they do see the need— of a Eucharistic revival, and they're they're very very excited, and I think they they themselves will be renewed at this Congress. So, I, I do encourage everybody to come. It's going to be an in, incredible event. And and Patrick, when you were mentioning the the Mormons mm-hmm. there, I, it re, it reminded me of a story that I think kind of speaks to the heart of the Eucharist. You know, when when 
we we lived at a previous house. We had Mormon missionaries come to our house, and they wanted to convert us. And they obviously we met with them. They weren't getting anywhere, so they brought this couple, a married couple that had converted from Catholicism to Mormonism, to our house with this explicit intent to convert us. And and they started giving us the elevator pitch. They told us mm-hmm. all about their community and the Mormon Church and how we needed to convert. And my wife my wife looks at at this woman and she said, "You know, I understand why." Why you why why you like the Mormon Church, but how could you leave Jesus at the altar? Mm-hmm. And it was so quiet. You could hear a pin drop, <laughs> and then and like like it was just quiet. We just no one. We just sat in silence. And then the husband perks up. He's like, you know, she made me convert. I wanted to stay Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then she's like, you know what? I never stopped believing in the true presence. You're right. I abandoned Jesus. And so like in her heart, she knew the truth. You should have saw the Mormon missionaries' face. They were not prepared for this. But my wife's like, it's not too late. And so, like, if if the Eucharist was just a symbol, that one has spoke to her heart in that moment. And and we need more people to have that encounter with the Eucharist. And we need to be trained and 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 fully filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you come to Eucharist in in, in Congress and you encounter our Lord. With 80,000 people, you know, when he says two or three are gathered, he'll be there. Imagine the the presence of the Holy Spirit when there's 80,000 people. That sacramental grace happens in person. We need to be there to experience in that. So I want everybody right now that's listening to, to go to relevantradio.com and click on the page or go to the Relevant Radio app and click on more information to learn about this Congress and, and to get plugged in because this is not something we can, we can miss. We, this is not something that people can, in, can miss out on. We need to show up as a Catholic church to show that we matter still. And that's, that's, that's why I want everybody to do that. You know, Patrick, I think you're going to be there. Is that right? Uh, I certainly will be. Yes, Cyrus will be there too. We'll be doing the show live. I know Drew will be there as well. Yeah. Uh, Father Rocky will be there. I believe you're going to be there too, Preston, I, right? I will be there. I'm, I'm actually really excited. In fact, I heard that the Relevant Radio breakout session had so many people signing up. They had to move it to the biggest convention center room. Oh. So um, it's not quite sold out. Other breakout sessions are selling out. So it's important that you get your ticket today because they are requiring you to register for the breakout sessions, the speakers and the and the the things you want to listen to, they're, the, the, they're requiring, and when they sell out, they sell out. Relevant Radio still has some spots available, so make sure you sign up for the Friday session from 2 to 4. That will be Patrick, Drew, Father Rocky. It's going to be amazing. It really well, I'm looking at it right now. So at the relevantradio.com website, you see that big red sort of glowing banner. Click on that, and you'll see a lot of detail here. Uh, the counter shows it's four months, two weeks, and six days away, and that'll go by very quickly. Yeah. Um, now, what about people who say, all right, I, you know, maybe I'm coming from a distance. Uh, I'd like to travel with a group. I know we have some packages available for people who want to do that. Do sure. you want to talk about that? Yeah. So if we're Relevant Radio is partnered with Nativity Pilgrimages. The, we've done worked with them in the past. They're excellent. They're the largest pilgrimage company for Catholics here in this country. And, and then, so they're able to, to help you figure out how to get there. Um, if you want just a ticket, we have discounted tickets available. Everybody that signs up with this will get the the new book from Father Rocky, The Treasures of the Eucharist. It's not even released yet. And and the travel packages are, are 
going to be exclusive to you. They'll they'll make it work for what your your particular needs are, and they'll take care of all the arrangements for flights, all that. And one of the best things that we have right now to offer is hotel rooms downtown. You cannot go and get those on your own. If you want to get a hotel room downtown, I looked yesterday. There's only one room out of like five thousand that are available, and it's thirteen hundred a night. You don't have oh to pay gosh. that with us. It's it's it, we got we got a secured block. For, for those that want to travel with us and if they want to sit in the relevant radio section in the stadium, it's going to be a great premier spot to see the to see the speakers live. You know, I, I am so excited. There's so many great speakers that are going to be there. Not 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 just the relevant radio, but people that you'd recognize, you know, for, mm-hmm. you know, sisters, priests, bishops. It's going to be something that will really transform the church. And we need to show the secular culture that we're going to stand together and march. They're going to have one of the largest Eucharistic processions that have, that has ever taken place, taking taking place on that Saturday, where they're going to march through Indianapolis with the Eucharist and and shut down the city. I mean, to show people that the Eucharist <laughs> Look at matters. All those Catholics. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. I I, I, I truly believe that. Oh, no doubt about it. And in fact, I'm think, I'm excited just thinking about it. I'm looking at the website right now, uh, relevantradio.com slash travel is where to go. Um, we for the, There are a variety of different packages. There's a VIP travel package, yeah. premium package, weekend exclusive package, yeah. group travel package. There are different ones. Yeah. And uh, all of them, I'm happy to say, include a meet and greet with Father Rocky and Drew and me and other show hosts. So regardless of which package somebody chooses to to get, if they want to go in the relevant radio groups, yeah. um, you're going to have time to see us and, and have yeah. us interact with you and maybe yeah. even break bread with you. It'll be yeah. fun and it'll be a great way to strengthen the relevant radio family, wherever you may be. Yeah, and I, I just want to mention too, for those that, that want to call and talk to someone about booking and, and understanding the travel better, they can call... One eight four 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 zero zero nine five five nine. Again, that's eight forty four four hundred ninety five fifty nine. So we also have a phone number available if if you want to call and talk to somebody. Good deal. Good deal. Well, it will be here before you know it. A little over four months from now That's is right. the Eucharistic Congress. Any final parting thoughts? Before yeah, we I have just to... I just want to say that that it's only going to get more expensive and more difficult to show up. So right now, I ask you to sign up today so you don't miss out on the breakout sessions you want. That you don't miss out on this Congress because it's going to be a life changing experience. It's going to bring renewal to the church and it's going to strengthen you to bring the Eucharist to your hometown better. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Preston. And Thank you. If we have more developments and things, will you come back and share that with us? I would be happy to. All right. Well, thanks for that. And uh, we we're real close to the time to take a break, but not quite there yet. Uh, why don't we get to maybe one more phone call before we have to do that? Uh, why don't we go to Mike in Temecula? Good morning, Mike. Temecula, California, for those who don't know. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Patrick. Nice to talk to you. Uh, you very quickly, and we're up against a break. Um, patient autonomy is very important. We expect when a mother has a high-risk pregnancy that mm-hmm. the doctor not abort the baby, which is commonly recommended. Um, and we, when we hear of a mother that carried the child and perhaps died as a result that the baby survived, we celebrate the mother's choice to be a mother and, and, and save the baby's life against medical advice. Um, and as you said previously, with, with, the, um, with the voting, we need to be consistent in our moral theology. Um, right. So we also need that we want to have the right to 
refuse medical treatment and inoculations and um and we don't want the government telling us that our child has is trans you know and needs to have therapy to become the opposite sex so patients do have autonomy and it's not you know i work in the operating room and recently had a was in the exact same situation um it's not really our place to tell someone that or to enforce our religious beliefs on someone else's uh, so i just wanted to tell that as anesthesiologist mm-hmm. that i think uh maybe we need to look at this a little differently yeah it's a i agree with you mike insofar as this is a very important topic i i am not at all proposing that patients not have autonomy i'm i'm glad that we that we do and that it's recognized but i'm thinking about for example the many different instances you know maybe as many as 10 that i'm aware of could have been fewer than that uh, or even more but say christian scientists who they they were brought up on criminal charges because they because of their religious beliefs they didn't provide medical care for their children and the the medical doctors said your kid needs this medicine or needs this operation or needs a blood transfusion and they said nope it's our religious belief we're not going to do that and they wound up you know suffering the consequences as a result of that aren't there situations i believe there are but in your view aren't there situations where common sense and medical truth overrides somebody saying i don't want medical care when the person could die well, again, um, are we going to abort the baby? Because common sense tells us that the... Oh, gosh, Mike. I'm sorry. Your, your phone cut in and out like that. I'm sorry. If you want to hold on, Mike, I'd be happy to come back to you. Uh, your call. I'll be right back. Now.